Well, as always, church, it's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. Glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go open up to Exodus 18. Exodus 18. We'll be there in just a little bit. Um, if you're new, we are continuing. We've been going through the book of Exodus for some time. We're continuing on the book of Exodus. What we do at the Austin Stone is we go through books of the Bible. We preach verse by verse, story through story, text by text. And so we follow whatever the text tells us to teach on. That's where we are today in Exodus 18. And what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, if you've been here, we've been looking at the people of God, Israel, learning what it means to be God's people. The last couple of chapters, chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, is Israel being taught by God what it means to be his. And as we've studied, we've seen that they don't really know God that well. They fail to believe in him so often. And the, one of the reasons we need to remind ourselves is that this is a people who all they had known was slavery for 400 years. That's all they had known. And they had only heard about this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this living God. They'd only heard about him through distant stories of their ancestors who God used to be active and used to be present. But for them, he didn't feel very active and feel very present. And so when you read these chapters, it's, it's God teaching his people, here's what I'm like, here's what it means for you to be mine. But for them, because they haven't known this God and they're learning, it's been a massive learning curve for them. So they're beginning to learn his character. They learn that, okay, when we cry out to God, he's kind and he keeps his promises. He made promises to Abraham and he's keeping those promises when we cry out to him. They're learning about his holiness in the burning bush. They're learning about his power in the plagues and the part in the Red Sea. They're learning about his provision and his compassion in the water and the rock and the manna in the wilderness. They're learning about him. And what we're doing by looking at the text is we're learning what it means to be the people of God. You and I are learning what it means to be saved, what it means to be his, what it means to be free. This next text in Exodus 18 is continuing that narrative of God teaching his people what his salvation is like and what it means to be his. And today in Exodus 18, we're going to see a man named Jethro. He's going to teach us a couple of really valuable things about what it means to be God's people. He's going to show us, through this, God's going to show us two things, that God's salvation is bigger than us and that his desires for his people requires many leaders. That salvation's bigger than us and that his, his desires for his people require more than just one leader. Because God has in mind for Israel not just salvation for them, but salvation for all the peoples of the earth. That when God thought about salvation and saving Israel, he thought, I want to save them so that I can show my name in all the earth. And when he thought about his people and what, how he wanted to lead them and rule over them, he wanted to shape every area of their lives, which, which would require more than just one leader. And the story of Jethro is really, it, it seems in the text as you read it, kind of out of place and kind of random. But when you read it, you're going to think about the church, it's very, very significant for us. It's very significant for us because the church, whether you've realized it or not, is always, if not careful, if we're not careful, we will always drift towards some dangerous realities. The church, if not careful, will always drift towards some dangerous realities that Jethro's story highlights. One of the dangerous things that if churches aren't mindful of will drift towards is this desire, this desire, this inclination to not want to welcome people outside of us into our church. That in every church there lurks this desire deep, deep down to have salvation to be primarily about us and not about God. There's this desire. 
And so we think about the church, what happens so often is deep down, we don't want to welcome people who look different than us. We don't want to welcome people who are outside of the faith into this fold because deep down we know if they're really a part of my life and a part of this church, then they'll change the way I like this church. In the church, what can happen, if you don't watch out, we become a people who we think, let's keep everything as is because I like it this way and I don't want to change anything. Deep down, what begins to happen in our most self-centered moments, we want our friends and our community to always look the same, to not be interrupted. In our worst moments, we want the church service, worship service on Sundays, to be the size we want and the style we want. Deep down, we want people who are around us to be in our same life stage, our same spiritual maturity, our same socioeconomic status, our same struggles. What begins to happen in the church, if you're not careful, is you begin to think salvation is about us. The church is about us. That's what happens in every single church if you don't watch out because we don't want it to be deep down about God being known in all the earth and us getting to be a small part of that. And the reason this is a danger for every church because this is a danger for every Christian. Every Christian, your tendency, you have got to know this about yourself if you're gonna be wise and follow Jesus faithfully, is over time, the tendency for every Christian is to choose what's familiar over being faithful. That's the tendency of every Christian. Is over time, we want to choose what's comfortable, what's familiar, not let's be faithful to God wanting to be a diverse people reaching more people. Because that requires sacrifice, that requires cost. I'd rather just keep it familiar in the way that I like it. That's one danger that even the best churches, if you're not, we're not careful, we can become that. We think the church exists for us. And the second danger that Jethro's story is gonna bring to our attention is this tendency in the church to have a few people do the work of ministry of the church. The tendency of every church, once again, is to go to drift towards this place where there's a few people really bought in, really invested, really serving, and everyone else kind of just benefits from it. I mean, in our day and age, it's easy like, to look at the church as if it's another like, corporation or a business or a nonprofit where we kind of think of it as, oh, there's really invested people and they're here to serve the masses and do the ministry to the masses of the church. And the masses' job is to appreciate, support, and benefit from, even believe in, talk good about this church, but not to serve, not to be involved, just to benefit from it. And so what churches tend to do over time, if you're not careful, it becomes a few people are concerned about the lost, a few people are praying, a few people are teaching the Bible, a few people are concerned for the poor, a few people are doing the work of ministry, a few people are deeply in love with Jesus. Every church drifts that way because it's easier. It's easier. See, what happens, the church becomes this place where the majority of people can say, I'm fine with being a part of this church so long as it only affects my Sundays at 11.15, 11.20, and that's kind of the window you got. That's easy. And every church drifts that direction. I know for me, that, that reality, that danger of the church is one of the reasons, honestly, I struggled so much to, to accept the fact that God had called me and gifted me to be a pastor. I struggled so much with that because I didn't want to play into that narrative. I didn't want to play into that danger. I know for me, when I, when I got saved when I was 18, what began to happen, God began to work in me, grow me, and then people would tell me this, Tyler, you should be a pastor. And for me, it was weird because no one in my family was a pastor, no one in, like, anywhere in my family 
had anything to do with kind of vocational ministry. And so for me, it was a bizarre thing to think about. Like, all I had in my mind was my youth minister at the time. And I was like, so you get paid to play ping pong all day? That sounds awesome. I'll do it. And not a shot at him. That's the only way I could perceive of it as an 18-year-old, okay? If he's here, I love you. Um, but that's the only way I could perceive of it. And so people would say, hey, you should be a pastor. And I go, why? why? Why do you say that? And so many people gave me this reason. They said, Tyler, you should be a pastor because you really love Jesus. You should be a pastor because you really love Jesus. And I can't tell you how much that statement irked me and frustrated me. And you're thinking, geez, Tyler, take it easy. Like they told you to love Jesus too much. I'm, I'm let me explain. I'm not saying, of course, a pastor should love Jesus a lot. But what, I, what kind of hurt me and frustrated me because of my own context at the time was what it felt like they were saying is, oh, the pastors are the ones who really love Jesus and everyone else sort of loves them. It kind of, to me, created this, the pastors are really invested in, the, in being faithful to the Bible and everyone else is sort of. Like, oh, if you really love Jesus, then you go into vocational ministry. And if you don't really love Jesus, you kind of just hang out on the sidelines. And I remember when I would hear that, it frustrated me because I read the Bible and I'm thinking, that's not what I see. I don't see a couple of invested people carrying everyone across the finish line. I saw people all loving Jesus together and having different roles and how they expressed that. But it wasn't as if those who really love Jesus, they get to lead. And so... You can imagine my frustration when God called me to be a pastor. I was like, dang it. Like, I was not wanting that. Because this danger in the church is so often, it's, it's, the thought is, let those people do the ministry. My job is to pay this church, support this church, pray for this church, and get out of the way of this church. And nothing could be further from the truth. And I think Jethro is here in this text to remind us as a people why we exist to remind us again, what does it mean to be the people of God? What do we do now as the people of God? Does it save people of God? What does it mean? Jethro's gonna show us and show Israel that his salvation is bigger than any one people and his desire for this church is bigger than any one leader. I want you to have that in your brain. His salvation is bigger than any one people and his desire for what he wants to do with this church is bigger than any one leader. Let's look at the text together, Exodus 18.1. 18.1. This is the word of God. It says, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So this isn't the first time that we've heard about Jethro. Uh, this chapter, it begins, 18.1, it introduces Jethro, and 18.27 is when Jethro leaves. The whole chapter is about this man named Jethro. It's not the first time we've heard about him. We heard about him all the way back in Exodus 2 and 3. So back in Exodus 2 and 3, a little backstory. Moses is fleeing from Pharaoh. He's about to be killed by Pharaoh. He goes in the wilderness. He, he meets Zipporah, who is Jethro's daughter. He gets married to Zipporah, and, he, and Jethro becomes his father-in-law. And for 40 years, for 40 years, Moses is living in, in Jethro's home, around Jethro. He's tending his flock. Moses' job for 40 years was tending Jethro's flock. Even when, when, when Moses sees the burning bush, He's actually tending Jethro's flock when that happens. So Jethro has a massive story, a, a, he's a massive part of uh, Moses' story, his personal life. And so, but it's, a lot has changed since last time they spoke. 
Last time they talked, Moses left to go lead the people of Israel, and now they're going to talk again after God had fulfilled all of his promises. And so Jethro is curious about what happened. I mean, you, you can imagine if all of a sudden God parted the Red Sea and God's people, an enslaved nation, got away from Egypt and conquered them, you would imagine rumors began to spread. Did you hear about what happened for Israel? Did you hear about what this, their God apparently did? Jethro hears that. He says, I want to hear more. And one of the things we're told about Jethro in the text is that he is a priest of Midian. He's a priest of Midian. What that means, really simply, is that he is the leader of an, another faith. He's the leader. He's the teacher of another faith and religious system. So he doesn't believe that the God of Israel is above all gods. He doesn't believe that the God of Israel is somehow the only God. He thinks, oh, he's one of many gods in this world, and my God's probably as good as him. And so he hears about this. He wants to hear more about what this God did. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says, And when he, Jethro, sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So Moses sees his father-in-law, he greets him with honor and respect and he begins to tell him all that God had done. And I love to think about the way Moses is talking to Jethro now as opposed to when he first talked to him, told him he was leaving. Remember the last time they, they probably spoke was when Moses told him, hey man, I gotta leave from tending your flock. You're like, well, why? A bush is on fire and it talked to me? I don't know. Like, like, that, like that's probably the conversation, a lot of apprehension. You read Moses calling into ministry and he was apprehensive. So I'm sure he was talking to Jethro about, I guess I have to do this. I have to leave. I'm gonna leave my wife and my sons here because I wanna make sure they're taken care of while this thing gets crazy. But imagine him talking to Jethro now. Imagine the amount of confidence he has now because he's saying, no, Jethro, everything the God, that God promised, he did. Everything. He said, we, he said we would plunder the Egyptians, and we did. He's telling them about the walking through the walls of water on his right, on his left. He tells them about the plagues. And I love when Moses talks to Jethro. He talks, he says, all the work the Lord had done. Moses had a role. Moses led these people, and Moses doesn't say, God was really faithful, and I was an awesome leader. He doesn't say, yeah, and I was really faithful too. He just describes it as, look at all that God did, which is a great way for how when Christians look at your life, even if you had a role, when you look at it and you're honest, you know God did it. He was faithful. He was strong. I just got to be a conduit for his power. So he tells him all that God had done, and this is how Jethro responds, verse 9. It says, and Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. I love a leader of another faith, the teacher of another faith, he hears, he didn't see, he hears about all the work God had done and it makes him say, blessed be your God. I mean, he received praise. He says, your God 
is above all other gods. He's above the gods that I have been teaching about for years. He's better. They, he hears about the work of God and his response is, he's more trustworthy, he's more valuable, he's more authoritative, he is better, he just is destroying my worldview and praise be his name. That's what happens, he hears about the work of God and I love that scene where they get and they have a meal together. He brings an offering to God, a sacrifice to God and Aaron and Moses and the elders, they get together, they have this meal around this newfound faith of Moses' father-in-law. Now this somewhat, what can seem to be a random story of Jethro believing in the greatness of God is here to remind Israel, salvation is bigger than you. It's here to remind Israel, salvation is bigger than you. I saved you, 100% I saved you, but it's bigger than you. You just saw a non-Jew proclaim the greatness of God and bring a sacrifice to me and believe in me. It's bigger than you. Because he told Israel from the beginning, I'm doing all of this, not so that people would see how great you are, so people would see how great I am. Look at Exodus 9, 16. In the midst of the plagues, here's what, here's what God says to Pharaoh. He says, but for this purpose, for this purpose I have raised you up, for what? To show, my, to show you my power, why? So that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The intention of saving Israel was always so that the nations would hear about God. Always. It was always his intention. It was never just about Israel. When God promised Abraham that through him he would bring the Messiah and through him he'd bring salvation, he says through him he would bless all the families of the earth. Israel was always meant to be a light to the world about how great God was. And Jethro, this story is here from Moses and his people to remind them to perk up their ears and go, why is this in the recording of the story of Exodus? To remind you that salvation is bigger than you. It's about God, not about you. It's about him having his name proclaimed in all of the earth. In the same way Israel needs that reminder again and again, the church needs that reminder again and again. Hear me really, really clearly. The church does not exist for you and your preferences. The church exists that Jesus would get all the worship and all the praise and all the admiration he so rightly deserves from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It does not exist for your preferences or for mine. It doesn't exist for us. So that's why we should be excited when there are people who come into our lives and come into our homes and come into this church and come into this this corporate gathering who look different than us and talk different than us and make different money than we make? Why? Because that should make you happy. Like, I'm so excited that God's getting more worship from different types of people. I'm so happy that God is getting more praise from more and more types of people. That's why we should always be moved by the thought, by the fact that people like Jethro, those who are outsiders of the church, would feel welcome among us. We should always be moved by that fact. We should always be a people that for those who feel like they're outsiders, for those who don't know what they believe, for those who are not sure if they believe, for those who believe in something else, that from us they would always hear about the great work God has done. We wouldn't be a people who silently try to tell them how great we are and how great our church is, but we'd be a people who constantly say how great our God is, that he would be so kind to a people like the Austin Stone that we talk about Jesus to these people, that they'd always feel welcome from us. Do you want to know a real tangible way to see if the kingdom of God is being expanded through your life? One, like, one, like, really, like, it's a very 
theological, ethereal concept, the kingdom of God. But one real tangible way you can see it begin to manifest itself in your life is when you have people in your home for dinner who look different than you and don't believe what you believe. It's a great picture because you're being reminded it's not about me and my ethnicity or my socioeconomic status or my country. It's bigger than all those things. And when you have people in your home for dinner or you're in their home for dinner who don't believe what you believe, don't look like you, you're showing them what God is like. The salvation of the church isn't about us. It's about him and his name being proclaimed in all the earth. And so if we as a people ever lose that heart, if we as a church ever lose that heart of wanting those who are different and those who don't believe to be a part of this with us, then we have lost sight of God. Without caveat, that's true. If we don't care about that anymore, we have lost sight of God. And God has to remind us again and again, don't want more images of you around here. Want more images of God. That's what this church should be about. And so if you're here and you consider yourself, maybe you're a Jethro. Not a literal Jethro. If you're, maybe you're from Taylor and your name is Jethro. I don't know. Um, I don't, I've, I, if I've said, where's the Jethro from? Probably Taylor. So and if you're, and your name's Jethro, I'm really glad you're here. That's all, sermon is for you. Um, but if you're here and you feel like an outsider of the faith, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so, if you're ever in someone's home who's a believer of, and they're part of this church, we're so happy you're there. We hope you stayed around long enough to see that all of the problems you're trying to deal with, Jesus solves them. He may, may li- make life harder sometimes because he's healing you in really significant ways. So if you're here and you're an outsider, we are glad that you're here. I hope you stay around and see how great this Jesus is. And you're here and you're a believer. Do you know any Jethro types, those who are outside the faith? And let me just ask you, have you ever talked to them about Jesus? Not, not about our church, but about who Jesus is, what he's done in your life. Have you ever talked about it with them? I, I love that Jethro, Jethro saw Moses in his weakest moments. I love that, that he saw Moses in his most despairing, most despondent. Because when Jethro met Moses, Moses had given up on God ever using him. He had given up on ever being used to set this people free. He had resigned himself to live in the wilderness the rest of his life and die out there. He had zero faith out there. That's when Jethro met him. Jethro knew that man for 40 years. And I love that Moses still shares with boldness of how great this God is. And it's a good model for us because us in this room who are Christians, we tend to get most sheepish about sharing the gospel with those who know us best. Like, especially like in-laws, right? You, you feel in this text, you're like, I don't know, I yelled at them last week. How can I share the gospel with them? The people who know you best, we tend to be most sheepish because we're like, oh, but they know how pouty I can be. They know how insecure I can be. They know how paranoid and anxious I can be. They know how angry I can be. They know how much I've just kicked my dog across the carpet. Like they know things about me. I don't have a dog. That's not an indictment on me, okay? But some of you. So, but they know those things about you. And we tend to think, and I've heard, I've, this, is a, this is a very a very Christian subculture word, but we'll say things like, it hurt my witness. My sin hurt my witness. Because we think we're the Savior. I gotta be perfect for them to wanna follow Jesus. No, the whole point is none of us are perfect. That's why we needed Jesus. And so one of the ways, if you're here and you're thinking, I just feel so shy about Jesus around this person because they've seen me do something terrible or sinful or whatever else, 
that's a great opportunity to start talking about Jesus and say, yeah, you know how I get really insecure sometimes about my job or about my relationships? I'm so glad Jesus dies for that so I can have a, an identity that's secure outside of my actions, outside of my circumstances, and I can know that I'm loved no matter what. All of a sudden, your issue became an opportunity to talk about how great Jesus is. So we should always be a people who are thinking, we want to continually welcome people into this church, into our homes, into our lives who look different and believe differently than we do. Because we want to be a people who welcome men like Jethro. Who are on the outside and want to hear, tell me about the work of your God. So that's one thing we learn about the people of God is salvation is bigger than any one people. It's for all the peoples of the earth. The second thing this, this story is going to teach us is that the type of reign and rule God wants over your life and over this church requires more than one leader. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. It says, the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will, with you will certainly wear, them, wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So Jethro has just seen how great God is. He said he's above all gods, and so he's like, all right, great. I'm gonna go get around his people and see how great they are. He's let down a little bit. He gets there and he's like, what are y'all doing? I mean, you've had that before. As a new believer, I'm sure, you're, you're, when you got saved, whenever it was, you're like, I love Jesus, I'm all in, I'm gonna be part of his people. You show up to his church, you're like, these people are messed up. I had no idea. Like, Man, this is really dysfunctional. And what I would tell you is, well, we just got more dysfunctional because you showed up. Because that's the reason, the reason the church is dysfunctional and messy is because you are dysfunctional and messy. And if you interpreted you as them, I mean you, especially you, okay? Especially. He shows up and it's different than what he thought. He can't imagine why they're doing this. And that's what's interesting about when you have people who get saved and come into the church Sometimes they can be more perceptive about what's going on simply because they haven't learned some of our bad habits. I love that Moses is going to be humble enough to listen to this outsider, new believer's perspective. I love that Moses is humble enough. He is the senior leader of this people, and he's humble enough to say, you're right. You're right. I, I, should, I shouldn't be doing all of this. Because Jethro sees it and he immediately recognizes how unhealthy it is, both for Moses and for the people. He says, you're going to weary yourself out, Moses and the people. It's bad for both parties. So look at his advice, verse 21. He says, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times." Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide between, uh, shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. So Jethro says, here's a structure you should follow so that you can lead the people still, Moses, and they can actually be served. What is it this going to require? A lot of leaders. I mean, think about the scope and the size of how many people that's going to require to lead God's people from thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. 
It's fascinating that Moses and Israel, neither one of them could see this. But Jethro sees it and says, this is what's best. This is what's best for you because he understood that, it's, that God wants to shape every part of his people's lives. Jethro didn't say, well, you know what? Just wait for the big things that come up and Moses will deal with those. As if God just wants to be a part of the big decisions of your life. No, he says, no, they need to have help in every area of life, but they need different types of leaders to help them do that. Same is true for Israel then. The same is true of the church now. God's people need a lot of different leaders serving and teaching and counseling his people. How, what does it mean to follow Jesus in this regard, in this regard, in this dispute, in this issue? God's people need a lot of leaders because one of the gifts, one of the gifts that Jesus Christ himself purchased on the cross for his people were gifted, qualified leaders. One of the gifts that Jesus gives to his people as the conquering king who destroyed all of our enemies and he gives to his people these gifts, these spiritual gifts, and one of the main things he gives are gifted, qualified leaders. When you read the New Testament, you see that Jesus, he gives spiritual gifts like, like attributes, wisdom, teaching, service, those sorts of gifts. And those are true. Every Christian gets a gift from Jesus, from a, a spiritual gift on how to build up the church. But in Ephesians 4, what's fascinating, it says he gives gifts to his people, and those gifts are leaders. So Ephesians 4, 8, listen to Paul. He quotes a psalm, the poetry. He says, therefore it says, he quotes the psalm, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. When Jesus conquered our enemies and he ascended into heaven as a conquering king, we were the captives in his wake who he set free. We're with him. We're excited. It says he gave gifts to men, to his people. And then in verse 11, you see those gifts are leaders. Verse 11, look at this. And he gave this gift. He gave the apostles. He gave the prophets, the evangelists. He gave the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Leaders, leaders are a gift that God gives to his people that Jesus purchased for you. The Austin Stone has elders, deacons, missional community leaders, counselors, welcome team leaders, kids leaders, all sorts, production team leaders, all sorts of leaders because Jesus loved this church and gave them to you. That's why they're there. They're not there because we wanted to create some cool structure of leadership. They're there because Jesus said, I bought these for you. I'm victorious. Here you go. Because he didn't want leadership of the church to be with one person as if he was limited to that one person. And he didn't want it to be limited to one person as if the only things that matter in your life are the big decisions. No, he wants to shape every area of your life and he wants leaders to help you know how to do that. He wants you to know how do you use your calendar for his namesake? How do you use your money? How do you think about your mornings for his namesake? How do you think about your involvement in this church for his namesake? He wants you to think about those things and he wants leaders to help you do that. That's why he gave leaders to the church. And our church has all kinds of leaders with all kinds of gifts and roles to help accomplish that. So church, listen to me. Your leaders are for your benefit. They're here to help you grow into spiritual maturity, into all that God wants you to be in Christ. So take advantage of them. Utilize us. Know that we're here for you. So talk to your missional community leader and seek them out. Talk to that person who taught your equipping class. 
talk to an elder, grab a deacon, ask them, I, I want, help me understand how I follow Jesus in this area of my life. And as we're thinking about leadership in the church, it's really, really crucial that we understand what qualifies someone to lead in the church. It's really important. It's in the text in Exodus 18. It's prominent throughout the, the entire Bible. Of what is it, what's the requirement to lead God's people in any form, in any fashion? And throughout the Bible, the qualification needed is proven character. God says, if anyone's gonna lead my people, the ones that I love, that I saved, they have to have proven character. Look at verse 21. It says, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who, what, fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs. It says, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. He doesn't start with those who are charismatic, those of a certain social status, those with finances. He says, no, those with a certain type of character. Those whose thinking, feeling, and acting has been dictated and determined and shaped by God's word and God's values. That's what he says in the text. And when you read about the Bible, that's always the case, especially in the New Testament. When you read the New Testament, Paul begins to outline, okay, what does it mean to lead God's church? 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, he lists out the qualifications for elders, the senior leaders of a church. And then in 1 Timothy 3, the next chapter, 8 through 13, he lists out the qualifications for deacons. 1 through 13 is just a list of qualifications needed to be an elder, to be a deacon in the offices of the church, do you know what all of them talk about? Character. Every single attribute has to do with someone's character. Are they above reproach? Are they temperate? Are they kind? They manage your household. They're all character related. And literally in that entire list, there's one gift needed, and it's for eldership. You have to be able to teach because the elder's job is to teach the church the scriptures. That's it. God demands that if anyone's gonna lead my people, they need to have a character proven and consistent over time. Now, let me be really clear. He doesn't say perfect. He doesn't say leaders have to be perfect because if you wanna know how imperfect your elders are, come hang out with me and my kids on a Saturday. You will see it quick, okay? I'll be repenting quick, but you'll see my sin quick, okay? We're not perfect, but he's saying I'm going to gift to you people who have a proven, consistent character, and when they fail, they repent, and they confess, and they come back to the ways which they know they're supposed to walk according to my word. And so, this really is a side note. If you're here, and you lead in this church in any capacity, what, what I love about those character qualifications in Exodus 18.21, it's the same character qualifications whether you lead 10 people or 1,000. Because every person's precious to God. He doesn't, he doesn't water it down for people who are leading smaller numbers of people. He says, whether you lead tens or you lead thousands, have a certain character. So if you lead anything in this church, make it your aim, your ambition to fight for godly character. To fight for it. To fight for your thinking and your feeling and your acting to be dictated by the word of God and the gospel of God and the love of God and the spirit of God. Everything God has said in his word, you say, I'm gonna hold myself to that standard whether anyone's looking or not. If you lead in this church, that has to be your fundamental aim 
and ambition is to have a particular character because that's what qualifies you and disqualifies you in leading God's people. It's not your gifting. All of us think if I'm gifted, then I should lead. That's not true in the church. You need to be gifted with particular character to lead. And if you're here and you're thinking, I, I would love to lead. I would love to lead in this church. I'd love to lead in some capacity in this city. Fight for godly character. Start serving somewhere faithfully and then talk to somebody in leadership. It's a godly desire to want to lead God's people. But talk to one of us so we can help you know how to lead and what it means to be a part of this church and see God's mission advance. See, I, I want you to know this is why God commands his people, commands his people to trust and listen to their appointed leaders. This is why. God commands us, Hebrews 13, 17, to listen, submit, follow your leaders that I put over you. Why? Because they're people who have a proven character. They're people who have a proven character. They're not in this to show off. They're in this because they love you. And, and I can say this in particular. I want to speak on behalf just of the elders of the Austin Stone. I, I can't tell you how much we fight to have character that is consistent with the qualifications God's placed on us. We fight, we hold each other accountable. We are gonna fight to have that sort of character because God's people are precious to him. And I want you to know, we do all that we do. God has given the elders of this church the weighty task and the privilege of saying, we are going to fight and do whatever it takes to make sure this church is as faithful to Jesus and his word as we can be. That's what we're gonna do. No matter what, we will die to make sure this church is as faithful to Jesus and his word no matter what, all the promises, all the warnings, all the blessings, everything that God's word says, we're gonna fight to be faithful to it. And you don't know how often we beg God to do good to you. You don't know how often we pray, God, move in this people, show them how great your gospel is, show them that they're loved this morning. How often we beg God for wisdom on how do we lead this people well. How often we study, we preach, we teach, we counsel, we serve, all of it, because we want you to know, love, and obey God more than anything, because he's the best treasure. That's the goal of our leadership, is not to lord it over you, so to help you say, no, but he's better than sin. His wisdom's better than yours. Trust us, this is what his word says. I want you to know, we take very seriously the fact that the elders of this church are gonna stand before Jesus about how well we cared for and taught you the scriptures and how much we pointed you to him. I mean, you're his, the church is his bride. You are his bride. And he's told the elders of this church, while I'm gone, you lead and take care of her and serve her and I'll talk to you when I get back. I mean, I think about if I left Lauren, my wife, who I love more than anyone else in this world, and I had to leave for a long time, and I had to find some people and go, hey, you take care of her, look after her while I'm gone. If I got back and I found out they neglected her, they lied to her, we would have a serious conversation. And we know I, that day is coming for me. It's coming for Aaron, it's coming for Brian, it's coming for all of our elders. And we're gonna talk to Jesus, he can say, How'd you do? And we want to be able to say, we pointed them to you as faithfully as we knew how. We loved them as faithfully as we knew how. We were as faithful to your word as best as we possibly could understand. We talked about it in plurality. We made sure that we were being faithful to you. 
That's why we want you to trust us is because we have been given to you for your benefit and for your maturity in Christ. And I want you to know that leadership, don't malign it. It's a sign of God's blessing to you that he's given you leaders who love you and are qualified. I want you to know that. This is what this text highlights, is that leadership is not a bad thing in the church. It's a gift to the church. Jesus died so that men like myself and the men who lead this church, that we could serve and lead you in that way. That's what I love about Jethro's story. It seemed like this random story in the middle of Exodus, and yet he's teaching his people, here's what it means to be mine. It means that there's salvation bigger than you, and it means you need more than just one leader. We need a lot of leaders in this church if we're going to be faithful. And that's what I love about Jethro is in so many ways, hang with me, he's getting us ready for the ministry of Jesus. In so many ways, this little random story about Jethro is getting us ready for the ministry of Jesus. When you think about the ministry of Jesus Christ on this earth, what, what comes to mind? I said, hey, what were the main things Jesus did when he was doing ministry? I know for me, two things that come to mind that are in line with this text is what he hung out with and welcomed outsiders. He hung out with and welcomed outsiders, and he developed and deployed new leaders. I mean, so much of Jesus' ministry was what? Hanging out with outsiders, eating meals with those who were lepers or prostitutes or everyone else had said, you're too sinful, and he's hanging out with them. And he's teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's teaching them about what it means to follow him, what it means to be loved by God and to be forgiven by God. And what's he doing? Who's always with him? His disciples. They're always with him. Why? He didn't just need a fan club, right? Jesus wasn't insecure, like, hey, guys, how am I doing? Great. Yeah. Like, that's not what he needed disciples for. He had disciples with him. Listen, he had disciples with him because he's getting these men ready to lead this church after he accomplishes salvation. That's what he's doing. He's getting these men ready. Hey, I'm going to accomplish all salvation. I'm going to give you this gospel and this people to care for and take it to the ends of the earth. They're with him because Jesus has in mind these men will, will be the ones leading when I'm gone. That's what he's doing. And why is Jesus doing both those things? Why is he welcoming outsiders? And why is he delegating leadership? It's because his kingdom was bigger than Jerusalem. His kingdom was bigger. It would mean and need more leaders and more people and more salvations and more territories and new people groups all the way down to Austin, Texas. He had a bigger kingdom in mind because he had died to purchase a people for himself from all the peoples of the planet. From all the peoples of the planet. And he wanted to use so many leaders, and so many generations, of so many cultures and so many races that no one could say, oh, the reason the church is growing all over the planet is because it's one really gifted guy. No, he wanted to, be, to say, the only way you can explain this common faith spreading throughout every people group is that this Jesus must be alive and saving people for himself. The Austin Stone is what it is because we have so many leaders who serve faithfully at this church who will never get recognized by anyone in here and they're fine with that because they know Jesus will recognize them in their leadership. Now, I, just yesterday, we, sell, we had to have 10 baptisms yesterday and everyone shared their story and I loved that everyone had somebody whose name I didn't know who influenced them and led them to Christ. That means God's up to something. It's not sitting around one person or, or a group of people. It's so many different people playing so many different roles and so many different parts to see this kingdom of God advance. And when we do that, when we remember it's not just meant for us and it's a lot of leaders, we continue the ministry of Jesus in this world. And as a church, 
When we do that, we remind ourselves this church does not exist for us. It exists for God and for him alone, for him to get all the worship he so rightly deserves. Let's pray together. Father, this is your people. God, we are your people. From before the foundations of the earth, you had us in mind to be yours. And you sent your son after us, and he died for us. He gave everything for us. And he called us to be a part of his kingdom going forward. He gave us leaders to help us know what it meant to be faithful so we could fulfill our ministry in this city. He gave us leaders to help us know what it meant to be faithful among the nations and send us out. And God, I would ask that you would make this a church that is always welcoming and warm towards those who are outsiders. God, that you'd make us a church that we love it when there's diversity and we love it when people look different than us and we love it when those who don't believe we believe are joining us and eating meals with us and hearing about Jesus from us. And God, that we'd be a people who aren't just a church where a couple of people are bought in, a couple of people care about who God is and his word. But that God, we would be a people known that everyone's all in. In different roles, in various capacities, and some giving five hours, some giving 60. But God, regardless of our role, that we'd be known as a people who believe our Jesus is alive and he's given us this people to belong to and this mission to accomplish. God, I want your presence and your power to be made known among us. That you use so many different people in this church that none of us could ever say and ever attribute any of it to any one person. We'd have to say, Jesus indeed is alive and he will build his church. That nothing can stand against it, nothing can overcome it, and he will use all types of people to accomplish his work. Jesus, I'm thankful that what we're doing is we're not, we're not accomplishing salvation. Jesus, we're just talking about it. Jesus, you did all the work, and we get to be those who tell the good news and serve and love those outside who haven't heard. God, use this church for that end as long as you give us breath. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church, let's stand together.